This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. For the week of October 14, 2013, this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 102 of Defender Radio. It's going to be a great show this week with feature interviews from Dr. Hal Herzog, activist Dylan Powell, and the Wolf Sanctuary's Carrie Rentala. Before we get started with the interviews, I want to talk a bit about what we call the most dangerous time of the year. Defender Radio News. It's October, and that means killers across Canada are rejoicing. Trapping season has begun. The legal use of leg hold, conibear, and body gripping traps has launched, and with heavy hearts, we're awaiting the first media story of a dog, cat, or even a child trapped in one of these cruel devices. For the last few years, we've been tracking news of these incidents, and have seen a gradual increase in their numbers. Trappers are not required to warn residents with signs or flags of their traps. In fact, their trade teaches them how best to hide the traps from the suspicious eyes of animals. It's not uncommon for a family pet to fall victim to a trap. The American Veterinary Medical Association reports that up to 67% of total catch and traps is non-target species. This includes at-risk and endangered species. Most governments in Canada do not properly track data from trappers, so it is often a guessing game as to how often endangered species are killed or missing pets have been tortured. We're asking all residents, whether or not you support APFA is irrelevant, to please take care when out with your pets, to keep an eye on children, and to know that without your voice, trapping and the inherent dangers of the practice will continue. If you're concerned, visit FurBearDefenders.com, where you can see videos on how to release a variety of traps, read documentation on avoiding them, and find tips for how to talk to your local government representative. Defender Radio News When people buy or breed a wolf or wolf-dog hybrid as a pet, it doesn't take too long for their owners to realize that this cute little puppy grows to a full-sized wild animal that requires a special kind of care. That's where the folks at the Wolf Sanctuary step in. Based in Colorado, the Wolf Sanctuary is home to as many as 30 former pets who can live out their lives safely in a natural environment. Today we're joined by Carrie Rentala, a spokesperson with the Wolf Sanctuary. Hi Carrie, can you start by giving us a brief background on the Wolf Sanctuary? Um, Wolf Sanctuary was established in 1995 and is an independent 501c3 nonprofit. And it came to be because a, um, a couple, a husband and wife, up in the Risk Canyon community, which is located in northwest Colorado, um, came across someone who had gotten a wolf hybrid, uh, kind of a wolf dog, and were not able to provide it with the appropriate care. And based on their previous history with caring for, you know, kind of specialized dogs, not your typical, you know, adopt or purchase a dog, from another resource, decided that there was an, a need to take this dog in. Well, as soon as they did that, the person who previously owned this dog started telling other people. And before they knew it, they were receiving requests from around Colorado and around the country uh, for assistance with these wolf hybrids or wolf dogs that had been purchased with a lack of education about what their needs were. And they tried to assist and take in as many as they could before they realized they needed more help and more structure to really make this a sanctuary where they could make a difference um, in the lives of these animals. So that's kind of the nutshell version of how their 
passion and willingness to step forward and try to help these animals out and educate people really started. How many wolves and wolf hybrids are at the sanctuary on average? On average, we have 30, and they are um, a mix. What we do when we receive the animals, which we have animals right now from um, a lot of different states in the U.S., and when they come to the sanctuary, we have the opportunity to kind of evaluate them um, based on the background information we've received and based on our observations once they're in our care. And what we do is we kind of rate them. Um, first, it's kind of that physical appearance and behavior, and we rate them as either a high-content wolf or a mid-content, kind of a 50-50 split between a wolf and a domestic dog or a low-content wolf dog meaning we feel there's probably more domestic dogs than wolf in the animal. And after we do that, there actually is a numeric system that we use, one through five. Um, animals that are level four or five are considered the animals that need the most supervision when we go in to take care of them. They might be our shyest animals. They might be our most wild or uh, pure wolf animals. And then our level one animals are the ones where staff and volunteer can go in together, they're either very socialized um, or have been around people in a good way for a good portion of their life. So we use all of those things to kind of determine uh, how we can provide the best care and the best environment for them to live in. What's involved in an average day at the sanctuary? Gosh, I'm not sure we ever have an average day, <laughs> but the, you know, every day is an adventure at the sanctuary. But um, for the animals in sanctuary at Wolf, they reside in packs of two or three. Uh, we have two packs of three right now, and the reason they are living in packs of three is because they either came in together as a threesome and showed signs that they had already established an order and were very content that way. Our other pack of three are actually all siblings, um, and we chose not to separate them. The rest of our packs are male-female. However, we make sure that at least one of them is spayed or neutered as we certainly do not need to see any more wolf or wolf hybrid puppies out there. And they live in enclosures that um, range in size from a half an acre to one and a half acres in size. And a part of the challenge um, for us humans, but a part of the enrichment for the animals is where the enclosures are built, which is really up the side of two mountains. Uh, we sit kind of right in between them and that allows them a more natural environment that they would find in the wild. So in the morning, when our staff first arrives to take care of them, the wolves you know, will come down to their fence lines. They're looking for treats and food, and, and for some, they're looking for human attention. And as the day progresses, they will either make appearances or they will simply make their way up the side of their enclosure, up the mountain, where many of them have lookouts and perches where they like to lay and kind of watch the daily activity. We always provide them with fresh food and water. We actually do poop scoop their enclosures. That's kind of part of our, um, you know, standard of care for them since obviously there's no other way to remove the waste. We do have animals on medication, and we provide medication morning and evening for them. It might be for a joint condition. Um, we have one female that has had seizures and has under, uh, undergone medical care and is on medication to help her with her seizures. And then, of course, we have meat day, which you know, we would love to have the opportunity per, to provide our animals with fresh, raw meat uh, seven days a week. That is a very expensive endeavor, and we're working to secure sponsors, you know, in-kind sponsorships for that. But right now, uh, twice 
to two to three times a week, we provide them with that fresh raw meat to really kind of supplement their diet and provide them more of what they would naturally get. It seems kind of obvious to me and probably does to a lot of our listeners as to why it's not such a great idea to get one of these animals as a pet. So why are so many people going out and looking to get a wolf or a wolf hybrid? Well, I think that there are a couple of different reasons that people think it's a good idea to um, become an owner or a guardian to a wolf or a wolf dog. Um, One of those reasons is that there are a lot of people that feel very attached to nature and kind of the spiritual world, and they feel very connected to these animals, so they feel that if they have one, that it, you know, really kind of fulfills in them this spiritual side or this really natural need. The other thing that we've seen kind of pop up, um, certainly in more recent years, is pop culture Um, you know, we've also seen this in the area of animal welfare. And what happens is when people are exposed to movies and TV where a particular animal is glorified, a particular animal is shown in this light of, you know, um, it might be majestic, it might be aggressive, whatever reason people see that and they think, oh, I think it would be really cool to own one of these animals. And you know, we don't try to pinpoint one specific one, but we, we've certainly seen shows like Game of Thrones. We've seen movies, franchises um, like Twilight, where wolves become a central part of a story. And sometimes people have a hard time detaching from that and realizing they're just telling a story for entertainment value. And they actually either seek out or they come across someone who's breeding these animals for profit and, um, you know, choose to purchase one and take it home. But these animals typically do not do well in a traditional home environment. We have one particular male in residence who was adopted out of a humane society, actually, and they only had him for three months and quickly realized that this was not a regular companion dog. He was very um, destructive. He didn't like to be left in the house. He was pinning people against the wall. He was showing signs of possessiveness. And, you know, showing the types of behaviors we see routinely with our residents at the sanctuary, and we are fortunate that this family seeked out sanctuary placement. What we have seen in the United States is that about 85 to 90% of the wolf hybrids or wolf dogs that are bred in the United States are euthanized by about the age of two. And most of the reason they are euthanized is because of behavioral reasons, because they are surrendered to humane societies that either cannot or will not place them, or they are euthanized by a family veterinarian who doesn't know of any other option or is not aware of sanctuaries as options. If people do want to get closer to wolves or try to feel the connection with them, what other options do they have? Well, I think the the top reason and something that we do a lot of uh, on a on a regular basis is education and being a part of whatever local effort is taking place. There are sanctuaries specific to wolves and wolf dogs around the United States. We are linked to many of them in in a rescue network uh, where we do try to assist one another in placing um, animals that are in need of a sanctuary home. And we would encourage people to get involved in that capacity where they could learn how they could volunteer, how they could do educational outreach to other people and, and teach them the value of these animals in the environment, their purpose in providing a healthier environment if we let them. And 
that is probably the number one reason people can get involved is to find a place that is already helping out wolves and wolf dogs and be a part of that. And, you know, I am up at the sanctuary every week and there's nothing more magical than stepping out of your car and seeing these animals, especially those that do have some socialization to people and to look into their eyes and realize they deserve to have a place here and this is how I'm going to give back to them. This is the way I can tell the stories of these animals, the way I can affect people both in their head and in their heart by making a difference, being out there and being a voice for every single one of the animals that need our help now um, because some other person kind of brought them into this situation and this is our best opportunity to give back. That was Carrie Rentala from the Wolf Sanctuary in Colorado. To find out more about the sanctuary and the work they do, check them out online at wolfsanctuary.net. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in? Your insulation is being ruined? and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring, protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. This is Defender Radio. The study of the relationships between humans and non-human animals is known as anthrozoology, and it's a rapidly growing specialty in academia. Dr. Hal Herzog is one of the many scientists who has explored our amazing connections with animals and has written the popular book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat. Dr. Herzog is also known for his Psychology Today blog, Animals and Us, and has published dozens of articles in scientific journals. Hal is a professor of psychology at Western Carolina University and joins Defender Radio to share some of his experience and insights in the field of anthrozoology. Hal, when we talk about anthrozoology, how are the various scientific methodologies applied? Well, it really depends on two things, and uh, one is the question that you're interested in, and two is the discipline that you're coming from. And one of the things about anthrozoology is it's a highly interdisciplinary field. It attracts people from you know, anthropology, psychology, nursing, veterinary medicine, all over the place. And I'll just, I can just give a couple examples. Uh, one of my favorite uh, recent studies was, uh, done by, was done by uh, researchers at University of uh, Nevada at Las Vegas. And um, they're anthropologists, but they didn't do any original research at all. They went to the what's called the anthropological record. They went over the old papers of explorers and things like that and uh, looked at the role of pets in 60 different societies. 
and it was a brilliant paper. It found out in very, very few of these societies did uh, people treat pets the same way we treat pets. So most of the societies had dogs or dogs and cats, but in very few of them did they actually pet their pets or name their pets or invite their pets into the house. It was a good example of uh, looking at you know, comparative anthropology. Uh, I can also use some of my own studies to illustrate uh, different methods. Um, one of my first studies in this area was with uh, animal rights activists. And I was interested in you know, why people become animal activists and how it affects their lives. And basically, I use what's called qualitative methodology, which was basically a series of interviews. And uh, I would contact people. I, I like to do the interviews in their homes. And uh, usually these interviews would, would be an hour to two hours long, and people would let me get a glimpse into their, their view of the world and uh, some of their, their experiences, and I was able to sort of you know, piece together a picture of, I wouldn't say a typical animal rights activist, but a, a, a picture of how, how people go, you know, change their lives in those ways. Some of the work that uh, I and a lot of other uh, anthropologists do is, is quantitative. So I've got this data set that's got, uh, my sample size is 50 million. And it's every, every purebred dog uh, born in, uh, registered with the American Kennel Club in the United States between 1927 and uh, 2006. So we're able to do mathematical modeling and things, and things like that on there. We're replacing the rise and fall of dog breed fads and why dogs suddenly become popular and why they fall out of favor and what the animal welfare implications are. And then there's other, there's other uh, people, for example, that are doing, they're interested in animal-assisted therapy, and they do the equivalent to what uh, in medicine would be called the clinical trial, where you have a control group that doesn't get a treatment, and then you'll have a, an experimental group that does get a treatment. In this case, it might be uh, interacting with dolphins or uh, autistic kids playing with guinea pigs in schools. Things like that. So the, the, the methods are really all over the place. In North America, we love our cats and dogs. We spend billions of dollars on them every year. But so many people seem disconnected or without interest when it comes to wildlife. What causes the divide between pets, which we see as family, and wildlife, which is barely on the peripheral for so many people? Well, I think that's a really great question, and that's something that uh, I've thought about, and uh, a lot of anthropologists have thought about. I, in thinking about it, um, a couple things come to my mind. One is the obvious one, which is urbanization. More and more people are living in cities. Fewer and fewer people are living uh, in rural areas, and fewer people are simply getting out into the woods where they come in contact with wildlife. Uh, so that so the, the basic role of animals in most people's lives now is they either have pets or they have an animal in their freezer that they're going to eat for dinner that night. Um, and so most people don't really have much interaction with, with, uh, with real animals in the, in, in the real woods. And then another factor, I think, uh, on the one hand, we're getting away from wildlife uh, in our lives, but we've brought these other creatures in our lives, the pets. But increasingly, we don't see them as animals anymore. And so uh, people buy clothes for their pets. They have day spas for their their dogs. Uh, I've I've got a whole set of photographs of wedding pictures for people that are getting their their dogs married to each other. Um, you know, one I did a, a study one time, and uh, it was on the ethics how people felt about the ethics of, of feeding pets and what to feed them. 
Well, one of the questions that uh, was on the survey that we asked was, uh, is it okay to feed mice to cats? And almost everybody said no, but they approved of feeding mice to if you had a pet boa constrictor. And I remember talking to one of my students about this, and I said, I said, well, why would you be opposed to to letting your cat eat mice? And she summed it up beautifully. She said, well, if my cat ate mice, she wouldn't be like me. And, and it's like, yeah, friends don't let friends eat mice. Your your cat's not an animal anymore. It's your it's your best friend. So we've humanized animals, that, which has also also made a bigger divide between our interest uh, in, in sense of animals as wildlife. Following up on that, there seems to be this big blind spot for people when it comes to animals we consume. First of all, we, we, we see these blind spots, I think, in a lot of areas of human life, not just with animals. But with animals, it's almost in its purest form. Um, I think people, what people do is they, is they compartmentalize, and there's a number of mechanisms that we have uh, to do this. And one is the, the definition that we have of, uh, the, no, I'm sorry, not the definition, but the categories that we place animals in. Uh, so, my, so the name of my book is, uh, you know, some we love, some we hate, some we eat. And in some ways, those are, those are, those are, those are categories. So we have animals that are, uh, that we love, the pets in our lives, and, and they, they have a certain moral status and psychological status. Uh, we have the animals that we eat, which we completely compartmentalize, and then we have the animals that are the, 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 the pests, you know, the animals that we don't like, you know, the rats and the snakes and stuff like that, and they seem to be in a different category. And then oftentimes wildlife is just, is just invisible. So they're not even in the they're not even in the calculus at all unless you're sort of you're, you're a bird watcher or 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 something or something like that. So so I think we do have these mechanisms. Now I think these mechanisms are largely largely cultural. And what you see is that um, because these categories are are culturally defined, you 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 can have sort of cultural con- confusion. So for example, uh, what happens? When you have a culture like, uh, let's take Southeast Asia, let's say Korea, where a dog has historically not been a pet so much as an item to eat, and uh, 25 million dogs each year are are uh, slaughtered in Asia for you know for the for the meat the meat trade, and uh, but on the other hand, Koreans are becoming more Westernized and they're taking more animals as pets into their homes. So you've got this sort of Sort of cultural schizophrenia. We also see this uh, in the debate, which uh, has occurred in Europe, Canada, and the United States over horses and horse slaughter, um, because what's happened is horses, traditionally seen as uh, work animals, have increasingly become seen as pets. But yet, in some places, they're seen as uh, food, and they're eaten. And then there's the problem of what to do with big, large animals when they get old and and they begin to suffer. And what you know? What should we do with them? What should we do with their carcasses? You know, which how can we make their life the end of life easier? You know, which leads to the question: Should we have horse slaughterhouses? And that, yeah, as you know, that's become an incredibly contentious issue. We're constantly learning more and more about the way non-human animals think and the way we interact with them, and, and even our roles in their ongoing evolutions. So, how is it that we get? the rest of the world to open their eyes to the way that some of us see non-human animals? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's a really good question. And I think it's a, 
it, it, it's a question that has a lot of practical implications. And I think it gets into the whole, the, the whole uh, area of the psychology of attitude change. And I think and this, is a, this is a case where uh, animal activists, activists of any kind really, that are trying to affect uh, change on a larger scale can uh, use, use sort of what we know about psychology. Um, one of the things that we've learned in psychology is that attitude change is uh, oftentimes governed more by emotion than it is by logic. And uh, let's take two books related to, uh, to animal issues. And I think one has had much more impact than the other. And the book that has had, I think, a tremendous amount of impact is a Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation. This certainly is written in 1975. Um, it was written in an accessible style. And about one-third of that book is a philosophical argument. It's one that's pretty easy to follow. Two-thirds of animal liberation is devoted to uh, things designed to, I don't, I don't want to say rile up people's emotions, but which get people thinking about these issues in a much more visceral way. You know, the horrors of factory farms, the way animals are treated sometimes in research laboratories, uh, the way uh, the, you know, the lives of mink and fur farms. And that book has had a tremendous, a tremendous impact because it was a double whammy. It had both the philosophy, you know, that applies, that, that, that appeals to, to your brain, the smart part of you, and then, it, but it also had uh, a part that appealed to your heart. A book that I think was philosophically uh, sound is Tom Regan's book, uh, The Case for Animal Rights. I think the book actually has had much less impact because it only it only uh, really dealt with the with the mind aspect of this of this head heart head heart issue. So I think I think I think appealing to to people's emotions actually makes a lot of sense. Another thing uh, is that we know that that attitudes about animals can actually change rapidly. I really started thinking about this when I uh, my research on uh, why why dog breeds get popular, and I realized that you know you can have dog dog uh, breeds that uh, where the dog has real health problems and don't make particularly good pets. The pets they can become wildly popular very, very quickly, and then fall very, very quickly. Well, that's the sort of downside of this rapid attitude change, but there's also a good side. So for example, a good side would be uh, the tutor for animals is, this, is the success of the spay and neuter programs. And in the United States, uh, 20 years ago, we were killing about 25 million uh, dogs a year, unwanted dogs and cats a year in animal shelters. And now we're down to about three to four million a year because attitudes changed about the, uh, whether or not you should you should spay your dog, and, and another thing is that related to dogs is now when I ask people about what kind of dog they have, they almost always tell me 95 percent of the time they'll say, well you know I you know she's a she's a German Shepherd mix and she's a rescue dog, and people used to tell me oh I've got a purebred Lab or I've got a purebred Yorkie, people don't tell me that anymore. They, we, we, what's happened is we've had a change in attitudes about about dogs related to puppy mills and uh, health problems of purebred dogs. So we've sort of 
made it more ethical to, to, to save a dog by when you adopt a pet rather than, than get one from a puppy mill. Uh, another, another thing I think can uh, uh, kind of help with that attitude change is the importance of small steps. Um, and what small steps are, it's very tough for most people to suddenly, let's say, go vegan. Let's say they read Peter Singer's book and they decide they're going to go vegan and they do it for a little while and most of them don't stick with it. And they go back, they go back to eating meat. But what has been successful is getting people to cut back on things like eating meat. Uh, so for example, campaigns like uh, uh, Meatless Monday, where you're not just trying to completely take animals out of your diet. Take one day a week and get, get animals out of your diet. Or there's another uh, movement uh, in the United States called the Vegan After Six. Or rather, I'm sorry, uh, vegan before vegan before six, where you don't you don't eat any meat until until you know until, until dinner, and that that really cuts back on on the amount of meat people eat. And then and then finally, um, there's a couple pieces of human psychology that are related to attitude change that that are just just part of human nature. And one is that it's easier to get people concerned and riled up about certain species than others. So for example, charismatic species, you know, uh, lions, tigers, polar bears, cute species, um, and also species that we think of as similar to us. So for example, uh, Peter Singer's gotten very involved in the movement to grant personhood for great apes. And he's been criticized by that, by some animal activists that, that say, well, like, what about chickens? And, and his response is like, look, your average person, it's going to be a lot easier to get the average person who can look at a chimpanzee and say, that creature's a lot like me, you know, and um, make that person sympathetic with the idea that maybe we ought to be giving these animals legal status. Then it's going to be to get people to stop eating eating chicken. So I think, I think, I think getting people to do things to realize that, that most people are going to make behavior changes gradually in their lives is sort of an important principle there. That was Dr. Hal Herzog. To find out more about Hal, visit his website at halherzog.com. And keep your eyes on furbeardefenders.com too, as Hal has donated two copies of his book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, for us to use in our auction later this year. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Fur Bearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at FurBearerDefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our fur-bearing friends. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at ArrivalLive.org. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. 
At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at Bearsmart.com. This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. Defender Radio News. While I was running through my Google News feed late last week, I saw a headline about a family of beavers at a golf course. I automatically cringed. The two subjects rarely go together without mention of the words pest, trap, and lethal. But it was a nice surprise. According to the CBC, a golf course owner in the Yukon first noticed a family of beavers move on to his property a few years ago. He had hoped they'd move on and he wouldn't need a conservation officer to resolve the situation. But what happened was a surprising benefit. They're maintaining his water hazards. Meadow Lakes Golf Course and Whitehorse should be congratulated for their progressive attitude toward local wildlife. In other golf course news, a sly fox has made his own game at a Swiss club. The young fox pup has been sighted hanging out between holes 1 and 6 at the Verbier Golf Club. From the hours of 1 to 4 p.m., golfers get to see the pup make their game his own. As the balls land on the fairway, he dashes out, grabs them, and runs away. It's believed he's done so with over 100 balls so far. But much like Meadow Lakes Golf Course, Verbier is taking an optimistic attitude as golfers enjoy seeing the youngster named, and you really can't make this up, Foxy. It's always nice to find out that while we fight to protect wildlife, there's a number of animal-loving business owners out there doing the same. Defender Radio News Dylan Powell is a co-founder of Marineland Animal Defense and the Niagara Animal Defense League. For the last several years, he has focused on organizing animal rights movements and has taken part in, or planned, several hundred demonstrations, including one that is considered the largest of its kind in recent Canadian history. Dylan joins us now to talk about protests for animal advocates, the ins and outs of organizing them, and what people can expect to see on the ground. Dylan, when people hear about protests or demonstrations, they often flash back to scenes like those of the G20 in Toronto, with real or implied violence from black mask gangs and extreme actions from the police. How realistic is this, and how do you get people past that hurdle? The question about basically, uh, you know, kind of the more mainstream... Uh, reservations about going to demonstrations or protests or protesting and uh, the fear of arrest or criminalization. Uh, I was just mentioning that uh, in my own experiences uh, in southern Ontario, the snapshot of over the last five years, I can think of about 500 events that have been organized in demonstrations. And uh, over that span of time, I was just thinking about this as I was revisiting this in my head, and I can think of four trespass tickets. One was myself at a Shrine Circus event, uh, and then three others that I know of, uh, two in the GTA, and then uh, another one here down in Niagara. So over that span of time, that's like uh, you know hundreds of events, thousands of people engaged. Uh, you know, no one you know facing uh, you know, 99.9% of people in, involved. You know, not even having to talk to police officers or you know anything like that. So. Uh, when that question comes up, I really try to put it back on people and keep the the conversation about really the realities of, of what happens because, unfortunately, I think what happens for a lot of people is they use, you know, that rhetoric as a reason to kind of stay away, to, to not be engaged and to just kind of do the things which are more comfortable for them. And uh, it's really important for people to, A, you know, know what they can expect if they do go to a demonstration. You know, if you do... 
uh, you know, run into any problems with the police. Uh, it's good for people to know the Trespass to Property Act because that's most frequently what comes up. And then there's a, you know, a couple other different, you know, public nuisance or um, disrupting police officers a little bit more serious. Um, those things you'll see like really infrequently, um, and that will generally be, you know, when there's kind of a more hostile relationship with police. But if you're, you know, for the audience who's listening, for people who are involved in animal advocacy in Ontario and even more broadly than I can think of in North America, you know, 99.9% of the time, anything you're going to be engaged in, you know, and any kind of above ground, you know, activism is going to be, you know, legal. There's your, the threat or risk of you facing lawsuits or charges or, you know, even tickets, even just provincial offenses or anything like that is, is pretty slim. How much of that information sharing and uh, responsibility falls on the shoulders of the organizers for the event? Uh, it really depends on the appropriateness of really the context. Um, you know, people are doing vigils and, you know, uh, they it's a smaller group. They're not expecting a police response or, you know, um, it's just, a you know, you're out doing outreach downtown or something like that. You know, um, generally you can get by on a pretty, you know, relaxed system. Um, the issue that's come up with us is when you start to get into the larger demonstrations, uh, and especially when you have a lot of people out for the, for the first demonstration, right? They they have those type of questions, and, um, you know, we don't want people in a crowd, you know, wondering what's going on or having people come with their own preconceived notions, and then, you know, they start going after people. You can't do this, you can't do that. And, uh, you know, realistically, they maybe they don't know at all what's going on. So it really depends... Um, for stuff, like the kind of organizing that I like to do, uh, campaigns, you know, marches, mass demonstrations, for that kind of stuff, um, you know, I've begrudgingly accepted that, you know, you, you do need someone to step up as a police liaison. Um, and that can either be in the form of uh, beforehand, I encourage to always keep any correspondence with authorities uh, via email. So there's a written record, uh, do not meet in person. Um, and then make sure that there's an established communication on site for if and when issues do arise and try and keep those uh, public service announcements, we like to call them little legal PSAs, you know, for when people are around so that everyone can collectively understand, you know, what's going on. Um, you can't have a thousand people, you know, talk uh, with the police or something like that, but uh, if there is an issue, you know, have someone step up, take that role, and then communicate that back to the group and, uh you know, make sure everyone is at least on the same page at demonstrations. I guess the final question, and maybe the most important one, is how do we know if these protests and these demonstrations have any ability to affect change in the long term? A lot of, like, questions um, about effectiveness of tactics, it really depends upon, I would put it back to the context, what is the context of the campaign, what are the goals, people will have different goals, you know, when they set up a demonstration, are you trying to disrupt an activity? Are you trying to build a community? You know, are you trying to build a mass uh, consistently? Um, you know, are you trying to bring people out to have an experience or, you know, to witness something? Uh, do you hope to affect change through, you know, affecting um, the, the economics of the practice that you're opposing? Or do you hope to do it through raising awareness or education? So, you know, questions like that, you know, do demonstrations work? Are they effective? Um, it really, really depends on what is the vision of the people who are organizing it. And 
in my personal opinion, across any movement, whatever advocacy you're doing, if you're not building a mass movement, and you know that can be done in various different ways. It doesn't always have to look like demonstrations, but you have to build a mass movement. You can't change policy, affect social change, um, change the minds of people who are engaged in these practices if it's just an isolated group, 5, 10, 20 people, you know, over and over again. We have to illustrate basically and create these mass communities that people can come into. Uh, but it's a really, you know, when you talk about measuring effectiveness, what we're attempting to do is very multifaceted. So it has to be a very specific question. Like, is it effective, um, you know, for example, have mass demonstrations been effective in causing economic loss to marine land? Certifiably, yes. 100% yes. And that is the legal argument which they took to a judge, a superior court judge. This campaign, these demonstrations, are causing severe economic loss to our business. Um, in that case, we consider that effective. Um, if we're talking about uh, the demonstrations, you know, help build the capacity of the organizers who were involved, uh, people who have been involved in the Marine Land Animal Defense campaign have been taking these tactics and these strategies and implementing in their own communities. And you start to see um, organizations and collectives start up in different towns where nothing existed previously. You know, things like um, this year to start the opening season um, for some of the Canadian Association for Zoos and Aquarium facilities, there were three opening day demonstrations. The year before that, there was just, just us, just marine land. The year before that, again, it was just marine land. And then the year before that, there was nothing. So, you know, we're hoping that through that, you know, mass demonstrations and this kind of organizing, we're building the capacity and we're building a base for more organizers to spread out and do this at different parks, but then in also kind of different ways in their own community, whatever, you know, is affecting them or what they feel is important. It's weird because people hear me speak and then they think, well, he thinks he has it all figured out and he's got this one-size-fits-all approach. And I really don't believe that whatsoever. Um, things will always work specific to the communities that they're, part of and it's always really up to the people on the ground to to get active to organize and then as a result start to see those things happen and start to really gauge you know what's working what's not and uh, how can we move forward that was dylan powell from Marineland animal defense to find out more about dylan and mad and their upcoming actions check out marinelandanimaldefense.com That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank Gates Wildlife Control for their ongoing support. And from all of us at the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals and Defender Radio, stay informed, stay strong. We'll see you next week.